Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to do nothing but become better habitat managers. Thank you guys so much for tuning in once again. We have another great episode here tonight for you guys. We have returning guest Tom James. This is our second episode in a row with Tom. We didn't get it all covered in the first one, so he's back tonight. Now, we talk about a a lot of really good stuff in this episode. I'll list a few things off here. We talk about bucks, their activity, and, you know, trail cams, how they can avoid trail cams. We talk about their mystique. Their, their surveillance of us, how they act, you know, why, why big boy tail bucks are so stinking cool. Uh, we talk about learning from our mistakes and, you know, what Tom calls learning occasions. And he's had a bunch of them over the past how many years he's been a habitat manager. Uh, we talk about his current habitat plans, what he's up to these days. You know, prescribed fire and managing clover, etc. Uh, we also talk about some other things like transplanting cedar trees for cover, and also uh, scoring deer in trade for bourbon. Guys, it's just another great episode. Tom's sitting around the campfire. Brian and I are sitting there enjoying ourselves uh, here in our places, and, and just it's great to catch up and, and just have another great conversation like this. So, Tom James, episode two, coming right up. Now, I want to thank the listeners for tuning in once again. I I thank you guys a lot, and I hope it doesn't come off too much, but I'm just super grateful and really appreciative that people keep coming back, leaving us great reviews, you know, buying hats on the website and shooting turkeys with them and just awesome stuff like that. Like, we love you guys. Thank you so much for all your support, and um, just wanted to let you know that. Now... We have been getting some great reviews on iTunes from all these awesome listeners we have, and I'm sending out free decals for anybody who goes on there and gives us a free review. So iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, if you leave one, just let me know. Reach out to me on Facebook or or off the website. If you go to our website, you can submit your email to tag along, or you can uh, you know, even look at the land plan section on there and inquire about us helping you out with your property. 
You can check that out on uh, HabitatPodcast.com. All of our episodes are there, guys. If you're a new listener, every single podcast is at HabitatPodcast.com. So I urge you guys to check it out there. We're doing uh, some turkey hunting right now these days, um, getting some apple trees in the ground, some fruit trees from Charlie Morris. Uh, I, I pruned my other apple trees a couple weeks ago, and what else did I have to do? Oh, yeah, I have to get my red osier dogwood in the wet muck um, on this lowland on my property. So lots to do right now. The weather's not really cooperating. It's, it's kind of cold, but that's um, okay. You know, it's no better time to be a habitat manager, and, and we're, we're trying to become better. So get out there, you know, enjoy your woods, and, and be safe. And I want to introduce an awesome new partner of the podcast, Chad Salen with Stony Creek Realty. You guys might remember Chad. He was on episode 33, and on that episode, Chad talked us how you can apply for, you the landowner, us, can apply for federal and state habitat programs, um, qualifying for funds to help you know, support these projects, cost share, equip, forestry, uh, CRP, all that stuff. U.S. Fish and Wildlife, Farm Service, Biologists. That was an awesome episode with Chad, episode 33, where, I mean, I learned a ton. Uh, and, and my property isn't quite big enough to, to fit a lot of these bills, but, you know, a lot of you guys probably can and a lot of this stuff is, is free to apply for and free to get these grants and funds to help. So check out episode 33 with Chad Thalen. Now Chad with Stony Creek Realty has also jumped on to help support the podcast. And please check out his website at stonycreekoutdoors.com. He's our Michigan real estate partner here. He has, uh, I don't know, a dozen listings on there right now, I think, that are pretty nice listings and a really cool website with uh, a lot more to come, uh, talking with Chad. So I think we are also going to do a Facebook Live trivia for Habitat Podcast listeners, uh, giving away some prizes here this week. Yes, so stay tuned to our Facebook and uh, check out the Stony Creek Realty trivia we're going to be doing here pretty soon. Thanks, Chad, for supporting the podcast. And uh, without further ado, I want to get our info and knowledge from Charlie Morse, and we will get right into the episode. I'd also like to thank our other sponsors, Packer Max Cult Packers, HuntWise Hunting App, Killer Food Plots. Be sure to check out Killer Food Plots. We have a new 10% discount code. That's HP10% sign. HP10%. We have 5-2 Outdoors, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook, and Morse Nurseries. Thank you all for helping support the podcast. All right, guys. Like I said, Charlie Morris's uh, helpful tip, and into the show with Tom James. Okay. Hello, this is Charlie Morris from Morris Nursery. Uh, today, I'd like to talk about English oak. Uh, English oaks in Europe, the farmers rely on their consistent acorn crops to finish their pigs to get their hams to taste a certain way every year. So. It, it, to, in my opinion, it's the world's best acorn-producing um, white oak, most consistent. And so many of our hybrids that I, we grow consist of um, English oak as one of the parents. So about half of our hybrid oaks have English oak in them, 
and um, are very productive and very dependable every year. You can read up on the hybrid oaks with English Oak as one of the parents at morsenursery.com. I'm actually sitting outside my back deck and around a big fire pit with my future son-in-law, and I've got a a bourbon. Actually, I got a Blanton's whiskey in my hand on ice, and uh, sitting here oh. looking at a fire right now. So, <laughs> I got a bullet bourbon sitting right next to me here. <laughs> oh man, Beautiful. you guys are you guys are you guys are class acts. That's awesome. <laughs> I just have a, well, uh, a couple of bush lights, so I guess I'm uh, a little no, bit nothing wrong with that at all. Right. Yeah, it's all right. I, I, I don't normally have a bottle of Blanton sitting around, but it was given to me by a friend of mine for scoring some deer heads for him as a surprise gift, and nice. I've been waiting for the right the right moment to um, break it open, and why not tonight? So. No, that's perfect. Let's uh, let's keep rolling while while we're going already. That's you, know, you, you mentioned scoring some deer, um, and I, it kind of reminded me when we were talking last week. I don't think I ever saw the final phase to your to your uh, 17 acre video which I ended up watching I believe last night or the night before um, do you do you score deer for people normally are you uh, what do they call my friend Jordan's with Buckmasters you're like a, a deer sure. scorer um, yeah certified term, scorer yeah yeah cert- um, way back in oh my gosh probably the early 90s again um you guys can probably relate. Everything, if you're so ate up with whitetails like we are, you, every chance you have to get involved in something that has anything to do with whitetail deer, you you, you jump at the chance. Um, so it probably wouldn't surprise you to, if I told you that I'm also, I've done taxidermy work for probably 30 years um, <laughs> as a very part-time thing. Um, started out just mounting some of my own heads and then started doing some for friends, and there was probably... I don't know, five or six years where I did 30 to 40 heads every fall and winter between spring and, um, you know, fall, excuse me, Christmas and spring green up, which looking back, I don't even know how I had the time and energy to do that. But, um, yeah, I became certified with the Indiana, it's called the Hoosier Record Buck Program. Uh, so it's basically based on the Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young scoring systems. And I got certified years ago to be an, uh, a certified guy for the Indiana record book. But I, I'm not Pope and Young certified or Boone and Crockett. But nonetheless, my name is in the back of the scorebook. And I'll get calls from from fresh guys that have never used me before that just, you know, they, they get a nice deer and they look in the book to see who's nearby and they'll call me up. And, okay. of course, I've got friend, friends and buddies that I that know that I do it and, call me once in a while when they're lucky to, you know, and connect with a nice deer. And so I've been doing it a long time. It's, it's, I maybe do six or so a year. It's not, it's not a big, a big workload by any means, but it just keeps me connected in that. And I enjoy it. Nice. Nice. And, and kind of back to the other part of the, of uh, your 17 acre thing, you ended up harvesting a, a pretty nice buck off that deer Haven project, right? I did, yeah. Um, we actually, if I'll digress just a moment, yeah, no, please in, the summer mo- in the summer months leading up to the season, we were really excited because we had probably four or five bucks that were four and a half or older, and so we were looking at a really nice mature uh, list of bucks to, to pursue. And as summer 
turn to fall there right about the time antlers were starting to harden off and velvet was peeling. Man, they just, every last one of them just disappeared completely off the, off the property. And I think, um, Zach and I were talking about it not long ago. I think the last picture <clears throat> was probably somewhere around September the 11th or the 12th. Um, now, we still had some small bucks that were frequenting the cameras, but when you had four or five, four and five year old bucks that were there daily, if not, you know, several times a week, and then suddenly they just go, they just leave. Um, I think there was a deer that we called Tin Snip that was a four and a half year old 10 pointer that came back um, around October the 3rd or 4th. So three weeks or almost four weeks of just no no bucks, you know, that would that I would consider mature enough to shoot. Um, so as somebody that practices this and preaches this and talks about it all the time, and if a buddy of mine were to call me and say, hey, all my mature bucks disappeared September the you know 10th or whatever, I would, I would say to them, well, don't worry too much because that coincides with, with um, testosterone levels rising, bachelor bucks have broken up, guys, they're vying for dominance, they're establishing their, they're going their separate ways, their, their fall, excuse me, their summer range is transitioning into a, a fall pattern, um, you know, crops are starting to harden off, everything's changing in the whitetails world, so it's not that big of a deal, don't worry about it, right? But you can't help but freak out when it's on your own place, and <laughs> especially the, when you had a couple top-end bucks that were, the best that we've ever grown, you know, ever seen. There was one in particular that we um, we called him B and w, B and W, which means what stood for big and wide, and he was just a phenomenal big, tall, wide ten. Um, and and he he's he's gone. He and of course, at the same time that that's happening, you start seeing social media and and things are showing guys are finding dead deer from EHD again. Um, and rumors start circulating around about this area or that area it gets hit pretty heavily, and you can't help but let that set in your mind and start gnawing at you and wondering, man, did did we lose them? Did they die? And um, and you know it's one of the coolest things about white-tailed deer when you're managing a wild herd is that you can't control them, and one of the most frustrating things is you can't control them too. You know, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> it's like that. When it all comes together, it's so daggone awesome. But um, there's so many variables and things that can happen from, you know, between 365 days from one year to the next. And you hope he'll show back up again or um, you hope it was just a fluke and maybe he left because this buck was more dominant than him and pushed him off the farm. But, man, when they when they leave for months and months and, never, and then you never see him again, um, it really makes you wonder um, – and if I may add too, I I'm old enough and and have seen it often enough to also hold out hope that mature bucks have become masters of evasion of even trail cameras. I read constantly and I hear other guys tell me stories about you know this giant six or seven or eight year old buck that was a you know throw out any score you want 185 inch deer that was never photographed on the property, you know, that was just never got his picture taken. And uh, that just adds more fuel to the fire of my fascination with those things and, and an appreciation for, and how cool would it be just to know that there's those mature bucks are out there and some of them even know how to slip around your cameras um, and not get oh, their pictures sure. taken. Yeah. Doesn't that add to the mystique though? And it's like, it keeps, 
it kind of fuels the fire a little bit more. It's like, okay, man, you still, there's that, you know, trail cameras took us to a whole new level of being able to monitor and understand what's on our properties. Back back before trail cameras, you just sat and waited and, and, and hoped something cool would show up. And when it did, it just blew your mind. And um, just to kind of know that that's still possible today, even with all the technology that we have is still, uh, it, it, it adds a good little flavor to it to me for sure. I'm getting fired up just listening to you talk about it. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I think that, that mystique that that mystique that you mentioned is is uh, an interesting term. I, I don't hear it called that very often, and I think it's the whole part of the addiction. I mean, I sure as heck agree with you, and I've noticed that deer in Michigan will literally walk around a trail camera, and uh, yeah, you have to have it up high. You have to have it set free. You have to have black flash or whatever. Your your camera can't make a noise, put it that way. And um, that's how you get away with it. Otherwise, you never see the deer again on camera, in my opinion, at least anything mature. And and then it goes kind of into the whole fact that every antler is different. And, yeah, there's there's a lot of mystique and mystery out there. And it's like Brian said, I'm just getting fired up here and you talk about it, so. Man, you know, um, and I don't want to get too sappy or too off in the weeds with this, but if you don't really appreciate the way that they were designed and built to be evaders of us and and masters of their domain and understand every, you know, little nuance of the terrain and habitat that they cover. I remember years ago I had my family. Um, we were out camping at the property, and um, there's a lake nearby, so we were – we, we had boated during the day and we, we took our, our boat out of the water um, for, and we're heading back to camp. And there was a family that raised whitetails um, on, the, on the drive between our camp and where we launched the boat. And we would stop there once in a while and just watch the deer through the pen. They had a probably, a, I don't know, maybe a 10-acre enclosure. And um, I, this is just one small example that just it builds to the appreciation of the of, the way these animals are wired. Um, we pulled off to the side of the road like we did, and I had my binoculars, rolled the windows down, turned the truck off, and just let things settle down. And the does were out feeding around out in this open pasture. And <clears throat> there was this really big mature buck laying back in the corner under this one tree in the shade, and he had some tufts of grass around him. And, and I noticed that he was staring off in the distance while the rest of the deer were totally relaxed and going about their business. And here, now these are, you could call them semi-tame deer, right, in an enclosure that have no fear of really anything happening to them as far as natural predation or anything like that. And I just couldn't get over the fact this buck was just staring off in the distance. And I, I kept looking down the road. I, I looked across the field. I couldn't figure out what he was, what he was looking at. And this went on for not more than, I mean, not only a few minutes, but five ten minutes and finally down the horizon line I, I look down the road and i see a form come over a rise in in the county road and there's a german shepherd trotting down the road coming our direction and that buck somehow knew or smell or saw or a combination of all the above i'd say vision is probably not not to play at that distance but it was just it, it just blew my mind here i am parked 100 yards away from him in a truck with a you know my family looking at him out the window not one time did he turn his head to look at us and it wasn't until that german shepherd came into view and he watched it walk by the road and he finally turned his head and watched that deer excuse me 
that dog walked by the truck and on off in the distance that he's twitched his tail and started swatting flies and stuff again with his, you know, and went about his business. Wow. But it, it was just, it, it just, it was just almost like supernatural to me to see that, you know, um, we don't give them nearly enough credit for what they're capable of picking up uh, and, and, and understanding their sensory systems and the way that they perceive danger and pick things that are out of place. And um, I'm convinced there's a whole lot of people that will probably be listening to our voices that do not give these animals nearly enough respect. And if they did, push the envelope and, and, and treat them like they were almost uh, um you know, I hate to say it, but almost like uh, an alien being, you know, that they're so incredibly perceptive of understanding you and figuring out um, what you smell like, what you sound like, where you normally come in and where you go and where you leave, that that some guys would be so much more successful than what they are. I really do believe people don't give them enough credit. So that's, that's an interesting point, Tom. Are you, so you're thinking if everybody gave their their senses, their being, their just the way that God designed them, enough credit, they might be more alert to or, um, I guess, just aware of how to approach hunting them, not just I do. walking I do. in the woods willy-nilly and, or you know, no set control or the wind's wrong or whatever. I mean, it's literally like you're going in there and for like a, a 007 mission to kill, you're... It, it, exactly seems, right. it seems funny, but it's, I, I, I know what you're saying. I, I can tell you that um, I, I, I allowed myself to, got, to get caught up into scent control and wind direction and entry points and noise while walking and noise of my equipment and noise of my clothing um, to the point where I actually, because I'm sort of very, um, I don't know, I don't want to say this, make it sound, um, but anal retentive, you know, as far as like ADHD is kind of a guy, I have to have everything just perfect. And I, it was, there was a point in time where I was so, so consumed in that I can remember walking to my tree and every crack of a twig or crunch of a leaf, I would clench my jaws so tight and just like my body was so tensed up because I just felt like I, alerted the entire woods of who I was and where I was at, that by the time I got to the stand, I had a headache. I felt just run down and exhausted and fatigued. And I kind of had to stop and take, get a hold of myself at one point and say, you're, you're making this not enjoyable anymore. You know, you, <laughs> you, you, you're doing all the right things, but have fun doing it. Just chill out and maybe take a step back. You know, if, if, Still do everything right. Still play the wind. Do your scent control, but don't be so consumed with it that it just it eats you alive, like it was for me. Um, but you know, hey, I know guys are still at that level, and I appreciate that and I respect that. But I think there are so many guys that are at, at levels well below that that really do not give this animal enough respect. And if they did, if they really paid attention to the sensory, uh, you know, the perception abilities of these of these animals, especially a mature buck. Um, their their success rates would would increase dramatically. I know one of the things you and I you and I kind of talked about in an email um, beforehand was small property tips. You know what as a, what maybe we might wrap this conversation up later with. But I really feel like having cut my teeth on hunting small properties 
and having to learn the hard way how to still enjoy what I do without over hunting that. And when you, when you, when you can hone that craft about hunting a small parcel and a small parcel to some people might be 20 acres and to some guys it might be 150 acres, but, um, whatever it is relative to your location and to your deer herd and deer density and, and mature buck, you know, numbers and, and how they relate to the overall proportion in the herd, things like that. Um, that there's a certain amount of things you can get away with and certain things that you can't. And, um, on small properties, you do things wrong early on and you can write off much of your season. And, and I, I learned the hard way when I was younger, um, you know, some things you don't even realize you're doing wrong until you, you finally do it right by accident and you think, you know, the light bulb comes on and, oh, my gosh, why was I why was I coming in this way all these years, you know? Right. And why was I, why was I leaving that way, um, you know? And you, you build those, you build those learning, um, those learning occasions as you go and that just comes with time and wisdom and, and, and just flat out, spending time in the stand and years going by, but a lot of guys are asking questions and wanting to shorten that learning curve. Yeah, that's that's a great couple of points you made there, Tom. Uh, it's, it's a real fine line because Jared and I go through it and we bond stuff off each other, and as the season drags on, we're, we're feeling the pressure, and that's a fine line. you got to find that balance between not putting too much pressure on yourself and still – keeping a clear head to pay attention to everything that you should be paying attention to. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense though about tearing yourself up by stress, sweating the details so much that it doesn't become fun anymore? Absolutely. I yeah. know I've been there. I'm, I'm pretty sure Jared's been there before too. And probably most of our listeners yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think you, I think you had a, a, a good point. I think um, if you get to the stage where you're, super super serious and you're and you're stressing about every stick that cracks like i do um it's it is stressful it's too much sometimes and then you need to back off and and realize that you know what it's deer hunting let's have some fun and so i do get that but like you also said the other side of the sword a lot of guys could also maybe get further towards that stage versus not worrying about access not worrying about wind not worrying about set control so I, I, I think right. it's a good conversation piece to have. Good deal. I, I didn't mean to get off. Um, I Sometimes we'll take a turn and start a conversation down the wrong path or a different path. Oh, we love you, it. <laughs> you would ask me about um, the buck that I killed. And so uh, this 10-snip buck that came back around October the 3rd or 4th, he ended up being the one and only mature buck that, that, that showed back up through season for us. Um, and he... I mean, he absolutely ruled the roost. He was the boss and was was uh, tending the does and breeding does. And so I got to play some cat and mouse with him uh, carefully and strategically and surgically over a period of um, a couple weeks. And it really ramped up. Our gun season in Indiana usually opens around the 12th or the 16th, always a Saturday in November. And um, I, I think it was uh, Friday man, I want to say the 13th or 14th in the morning, in the morning hunt that I was able to, um, I killed him with my bow at like 10 o'clock and eight, excuse me, eight to 10 o'clock. Somewhere at that time frame in the morning as, as he was following a group of does coming up 
out of the bottom fields and they, they worked around the, the back fringe of one of my food plots and were heading into the upper um, benches up in the, the top to, to bed down for the day. And, and uh, really, really cool experience though, because I, I was watching two bucks, one ridge over from, from them that were walking real slowly, kind of tiptoeing along and they kept looking over my direction, but that sort of in front of me yet. And, um, that, you know, they kept throwing their heads up and I could tell they were trying to win something, but the wind was coming from them to me and I was watching them and it, I, I realized after a few minutes what was going on. They were side, they were side trailing. Um, there was a hot doe and uh, probably two does and Ken Snip was walking behind the hot doe and, and those bucks were one ridge over, you know, 50 yards, 75 yards away, just, you know, just side to side saddle. And, um, the, the doe walked out in this perfect little clear opening that was a result of some timber cuts a few years ago. And, um, I turned the camera around and got it on her and she walked through the opening and it would have been just, you know, perfect scripted if he would have walked right out like she did. And of course, like a mature buck, he didn't. He stopped at the opening and turned <laughs> and side hill and kind of walked off the side shoulder of the ridge and was doing a complete semicircle around the edge of the side of the ridge and, and was, I mean, at, at the outer limits of my range. And I had already ranged a, a couple trees over there in advance, so I knew the ranges of it. But I ended up shooting him at just over 40, 40 yards when he when he kind of leveled back out on top. And um, Great job. Cool thing was it was a, a beautiful, I couldn't have asked for a better shot. Um, got it on video. It was a little bit, you know, I had to pull the frame out wide. If you guys do any self-filming, you know, if you're in too tight, you can miss a shot. So you oh, yeah. you pull out a little bit wide to hopefully capture everything because they can move while you're drawing and getting set up and all that. Um, but I watched him mule kick and run off, and, you know, I saw the lighted knock bouncing with him, and it didn't pass through, but it looked like a perfect placement. And then he went out of went out of sight, and everything went silent. And um, as as every time you shoot a big deer, you you second guess yourself, and you worry, and you you pray and hope that it was a good shot, and it was a lethal shot, and that he was he's down for the count. But it was, I, this was the first time ever that um, <clears throat> excuse me that I didn't get down and go right right you know give the deer time and go look for him. I actually. Made a couple calls. I, I called my daughter and my my son, future son-in-law Zach. Let them know that I just shot ten snip and it looked good. They were both working, and then I called my buddy Casey Shootman, um, you know, who films with me and produces the Management Advantage, and he's four and a half hours away in Illinois. And he said, "I'm on my way," you know. And I said, "Wait a minute, don't leave yet. Don't leave yet." So um, I I composed myself, climbed down, and went over to the spot where he was standing when I hit him and just immediately saw fantastic blood. So I, I said, Casey, come on over. He said, Chuck's already loaded, bud. I was re- waiting for your call. So, um, <laughs> uh, there was another friend, uh, Jubal Dyke, uh, is his name. Jubal and I met through Facebook and he's, he follows us on the management advantage and, uh, really, really awesome guy from Southern Indiana and came up and wanted to be a part and lending a hand and, 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 and offering some help on the project when we were planting and um, putting in trees and planting the warm season grasses and food plots. And he actually was instru- instrumental in helping me get the redneck blind assembled and put into position. So he and I have become great friends and, and he wanted to, he wanted the phone call as well. So 
um, and it was like a little party, you know, of a few of our, my closest friends coming together to help do the oh, follow up yeah. on this buck. And it was really special because of what we had all done together that year and this first big, really big push of a habitat improvement and, you know, a lot of the sweat and toil and time and energy that went into, um, can't say that that was a hundred percent the reason Tim Smith came back, but I can tell you guys this, the stage is set. It sure didn't hurt having that there for him to feel comfortable. We got his pictures, um, in the beans and in the standing in the warm season grasses and working through all the clover roads. So he was a regular in that big field every night and he just made himself at home and set up shop there. So, uh, it really did feel like it was a reward for our efforts for the year, and everybody got to celebrate in and be a part of it. It was really awesome. Absolutely. That's beautiful when a plan comes together like that. Not doesn't happen very often. but No, um, it doesn't. And, man, and man we love it, and we uh, cherish them and soak them in when, when we can. Because you're right, there's so many times that it doesn't come together. What did that buck end up scoring? You know what? To this day, I still have not put a tape on him. I'm embarrassed to tell you that because here I am, a scorer. No, that's, um, that's great. I'll tell you this, though. is uh, one of those deer that the body, he looked bigger on the uh, the rack, looked bigger on him on film and on cameras than what I think he really is. So I was guessing pushing 160 as a 10-pointer, okay. um, he's probably going to be in the mid-40s, upper 40s, somewhere in there um, at, the, at the top end probably. But nonetheless, a, a mature, you know, big four-and-a-half-year-old buck that uh, was a very, very wor- worthy adversary through the season. And, man, I, um, it wasn't the first time I've seen him. He was just I, – I had gotten glimpses of him up on top of the ridge and following does and doing this and that and the other and always, as they always tend to do, you know, work the other way from you, even on some proven locations that seems like they just have that sixth sense and he was full of that. So, oh yeah. Um, when it came well, together, it was really awesome. That. Man, thank you very much. Yeah, congrats. Thank nice job. Great deer. So, thank you on very the much. last on the last part, you were going out to check a burn. I'm dying to hear how everything finished up with that, and I want to hear about the current habitat projects you got going on this week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great question. The, uh, the the night that I hung up the phone with you, uh, my buddy Dean was still there with me on the farm, and he had taking a couple laps on a side-by-side and um, pretty much confirmed that all the embers were out on the last little bit. And I jumped on with him and did one last visual. So it was well after dark when we shut the, uh, shut the farm down and the other night. And um, we haven't been back, but I am going back over there tomorrow evening to um, there was one couple acre uh, separated field off on the very far Southeast corner of the farm that we're going to light tomorrow afternoon and that'll complete the 55 acres of his burn um i have another good friend of mine jamie turpin who lives in um uh, henry county halfway between myself and that other big farm and he is uh right now as we speak he's probably just about shutting off his machine he's been running a forestry head and and really tearing up a bunch of uh uh bush honeysuckle is a real big problem in base of species in his area He's got another friend, Jeff Irwin, that's working with a mini excavator with a thumb bucket on it. And they're, and Jeff's grabbing and pulling honeysuckle out by the wads and stacking them up into a pile to burn. And uh, in, interesting little prospect. Jamie and I burn some each other's warm season grasses every year. But, but he's also going to run a fire through this uh, old marshy area 
that uh, was backed up and created by some um, interruptions in a in some ditches, and it caused some of this area to get really marshy. And we they've corrected the drainage, and and now they're removing some of the honeysuckle. I'm going to light a fire through there tomorrow to burn off some of that you know reed canary grass and some of that tall fescue and crap that's really choking out some of the good natives that we want to see in there and and he's already in a great deer area but that's just gonna that that improvement on that little wet bottom area for him will be uh another extension a big game changer for for that habitat and i'm going to try to drop in there tomorrow and help those guys finish that out tomorrow night and then um in the very near future i'm looking over my shoulder i've got about oh probably four acres of uh switchgrass, Indian grass, and big blue stem here um, in our farm right behind the house where I live. Small woodlots here, and we have some deer, but it's not, it's more or less just a, a nice little place for me to do what I love to do when I can't be over, you know, an hour and a half away at my big farm. I get to play around here a little bit. So we've got a small piece that we're going to burn here as well. Um, still, you know, chomping at the bit. There's not uh, not a lot of time, and we'll be, um, we'll be thinking um, – Warm season annuals, corn and soybean time is uh, just right around the corner. And um, a couple things that I've done since we last talked was I did do some frost seeding on some of the clover lanes. Um, most 99% of the, the farm, the project came in great. Clover was outstanding. The, the, one, the one thing that we were up against, though, is the night that we finished – the clover plantings and the warm season grass plantings, we had like a three inch rain overnight. And I was worried that I was going to get some washouts and, and some seed displacement. And I, and I did in a, in a few spots. So, um, the clover frost seeding just to help fill in some of those gaps. And, um, I think I mentioned to you guys too, I had a little bit of warm season grass seed left over and, somewhat of an experiment i mean when you think about it the, the the life cycle of those grasses is they drop seed on the ground they winter over they get frozen so they stratify so the seed gets primed for germination the next year i um, i went ahead and actually frost seeded with uh with an over the shoulder bag it wasn't easy because that seed doesn't flow well as you can imagine with the you know a lot of the fluffy seed but i was able right. to put out some seed just by walking around back and forth and shaking the heck out of a uh, of a uh, over-the-shoulder bag and, and got some additional seed in some of what I would consider the thin areas. Now, I'm sort of an impatient, an impatient guy, and had I waited um, <laughs> and given that another growing season, there was probably enough seed in there for that to thicken up on its own anyway. But I'm one of those guys that, man, I hate to lose a whole season to find out why didn't I do that. Yeah, um, yeah, you're good. For sure. You know, yeah, so you guys have been there. You, you, oh, you. Yeah. You think, oh, if I'm patient and I let this take its own course naturally, I could probably be ha- happy with what it'll show me a, a year from now. But um, I had the extra seed and I had the time, and I knew that I was going to put it down at a rate that wasn't going to cause overcrowding. So why not? Why not give it a try? For sure. Now, what kind of clover varieties do you like when it comes to frost seeding? Um. I tell you what, there's some really good ones out there, and I've got to be careful how I say this because we we work, we are in some really great relationships with some seed companies. Oh, sure. And, no, I um, just you know, mean I, like like I, white or red or manic yeah, or, yeah. You know, you don't have to go into brand will, names, but just just whatever, whatever kind of different color, or, you know, that type of deal. Absolutely, I'm a big fan of the improved white 
intermediate clovers, and that would be, you know, the, the hybrids between Ladino and Dutch whites. You've got those intermediate clovers, and, and I don't mind throwing out some names. I, I'm, I'm happy. I, I can tell you that we've been really, really satisfied and just blown away with the production levels and the year-after-year uh, year return and the, and the competition as far as how it, how it, how it holds its own against some, uh, some weed competition and tough grass competition is the, is the Pennington seed varieties of both the Durana and the Patriot clovers. I'm just okay. a super huge, super huge fan of those. Um, and they're a short clover, so they don't get real tall and stemmy. They don't have the lignin and the stems that you would see in hay production type clovers that get kind of, you know, as we talk about that cellulose builds up in the stem and they get a little bit almost uh, woody uh, as they get older in the season. These things are, will continue to stay short and tender and lush, and um, but just superb um, spreading capabilities from from what they do underground with the rhizomes and the way they spread out and and fill in uh, basically carpet. They create a carpet of clover and will out out compete and smother out uh, competing grasses and weeds next to them. It's 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 quite impressive to watch, really. Um, no, and and, a, no, and a mature, your... a ma- go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Finish your thought. I was just going to say, you know, a mature height on those things is. Just above ankle height, you know they're not uh, they're not knee high clovers, so it it really allows your um, polt, turkey poults and birds and game birds and other things to be out there working those clover fields um, at at at, the, at all times of the season. You know, even if you can't mow them frequently or get on them and do and do some maintenance to them, that they they retain that lower lower height, which I which I really like. Sure. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. What your maintenance was moving forward from there throughout the year? How do you take care of those clover plots? Yeah, the uh, so there's a lot of schools of thought on that now. I've seen in the last couple of years where there's a, a lot of research that says you're better off not mowing. You know, in a lot of cases, um, I'm still a little bit of the old school type. When my clovers bloom beyond 40 to 60 percent of the of uh, the field is covered in blossoms, that tells me that they're at the end of the growing cycle, they're set, getting ready to set on seed, which means that the top growth is starting to harden off and, and protein levels are peaked out and starting to, to diminish, and which tells me palatability is decreasing. And so I, I, I like to mow high. I like to mow just the very tops of them off and, and cut the flowers and the tops of the leaves. And, and, of course, that helps you eliminate any poking weeds and grasses that are trying to jump in there and compete along. But uh, you know, if, if you've got a good, healthy stand of clover, four days after you mow it, it's it's flushed back out completely, completely canopied over again, and um, so that can cause you if you're if you're looking at mowing frequently on that sort of a cycle where where you're watching blossoms. Um, heck, you could do that four to six times a year. You know, a summer if if you're really staying on top of it, but you don't have to, of course, and um, sure. that's sort of like ultra high maintenance levels there. But um, watching watching the grass influx on them and watching broadleaf weeds, as we all know, clovers are awesome for the first two or three years of their life, and then they slowly start to fade um, as as their uh, as their just their main base gets a little bit thinner and weaker. Um, and that can be supplemented, and if you're if you're a really a hands-on guy and and can spot that stuff happening, then you can frost seed a fresh stand of clover into that to reinvigorate the stand to keep it always going but um, sure. some 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 broadleaf control and some 
and some grass control on them, maybe once a season or twice a season if you're in a if you're in an area that allows you to do that, and if uh, if your budget allows you to do that, then that's a good way to keep them. You know, keep your soil amenities right, your your pH and your your fertilization and your macro micronutrient levels right, and um, don't want to don't want to mow or spray when it's hot and dry and stressful for us. That's usually July fifteenth through August thirtieth is really really tough and dry here, and um, those those things will go dormant. And that's when it's nice to have the chicory mixed in as a as a component of that mix. The chicory will carry the day when the clover is faltering and going going dormant. Um, so I do have a, you know, maybe a, if if you're planting chicory at say nine pounds an acre at full strength, maybe I'll have three or four pounds in there. You know, so it's about just a little bit under half full strength rate to right. uh, to to coexist nicely with the clover without out competing it um anyway that that's nice to have in there too for uh an extra sure. buffer and not to mention it holds its own and it has its own attraction and its own nutrient level peaks that that are different from clover so um, yeah, i'm sort of in between, the same old school like yeah. you are with uh with mowing and I, I read a lot about that, but we're we're big on telling people, you know, if it's working for you and it's worked for years, don't don't reinvent the wheel. Keep doing what works at your farm and don't right. complicate things. Nope, nope. I respect everybody's opinions, and you know, if the research can prove Absolutely. that um, le- leaving a clover field stand, and uh, even though that they've peaked and they've matured at their uh, at the at the end of the what we would call that, you know seed stage and and by resetting it the reduction of available tonnage or forage uh, capacities don't offset the uh the or excuse me the advantage of resetting that doesn't offset leaving that stand then hey i'll consider that and maybe do some experimenting on my own but right now that's that seems i do know that that deer absolutely love that fresh you know rapidly growing succulent new growth after you mow they're in there just just consuming that like crazy yeah Tom I think you you bring up a good point there and I meant to ask uh, Dr. Craig Harper about this when we had him on because he is uh, more towards the the opposite mindset of, of letting the forbs grow letting everything grow D- don't mow th- that type of thing and, and you talk to him I mean you can't you can't even argue with the guy what he says makes sense I mean i I freaking love that episode. Um, yeah, Craig's but, awesome. I, I have yeah. the greatest deal of respect for Craig, and me too. Um, and 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 actually, he's a personal friend of mine, and I, that's why I said I, I I'm kind of an old dog, though. It takes me a while to to right. uh, to trade to change my mind. And when I've done something for so long and it works great, and it almost seems seems counterintuitive to think about the other way, um, but I'm open minded. I'm not closed minded about that by any means. No, and and I I think that's how you be successful in life is to be open minded, and I'm, I feel like I try to do the same thing, um, just accepting opinions all over the place and just trying to learn. Uh, but w- what I wanted to ask Craig was, you know, how does that affect the attractiveness? Because you may have more crude protein, you may have more tonnage, but if it's not as attractive, if it's not young and tender growth. You know, like like where where does the line fall there? Which is just kind of something I've always thought about. 
Um, sure. You know, mm-hmm. attractiveness is important if you're near a tree stand and have a bow and arrow in your hand. So it's interesting. You guys, we talked about last week, we also talked about the comparison of conventional tillage and, and no-till right. applications and how that some people, it's gospel in the South, you know, and I, I mentioned about moisture conservation and, and elimination of, of competitive weed seeds or the reduction of that. And, and I think that this conversation goes into that same pocket, if you will, that the, um, because that we're blessed with a, a humid, warm, beautiful soil, rich nutrients, that I can mow my clover as long as I'm not doing it through a stress period. And as I said earlier, I'm not kidding you, four days later, it's back. Um, whereas a guy in a harsher environment, maybe poorer soils, uh, a, a more well-drained site, direct sun, that once you mow your clover off, it, it may be a month before it comes back. And so that would be certainly a consideration from him. For me, it's a, gosh darn it, I'm going to do it. You know, I, I do it this way just because I know what I've got here. I've got, a, I've got an ice cream field here. I've got this wonderful soil and the perfect growing environment. Whereas somebody that's dealing with a more stressed environment or not so ideal conditions, that that would certainly be something that they would t- want to take into consideration. It's again everything that we talk about talk about here in every bit of this the, the habitat stuff that you know every detail is is not a one size fits all. There's not right. a one answer what works for everybody wherever you're at. Great, great point. Great point. Uh, one thing we didn't get into last week, which I I was very intrigued about, was the way that you you, you transplant different young trees, whether chestnuts or or chickenpen oaks, or or maybe you have other varieties as well. You, you start them in the timber and you move them out into the fields. Um, are there any other trees that you do that with, or, or kind of explain quickly your mindset on that? Yeah. Okay. So I don't normally do that just every day to day, but okay. because of this, because of this introduction, and I, I, you know, I purchased the twenty three to twenty five hundred um, oak saplings from the the forestry department, planted those into the field and the project, um, and I knew going into that that I was going to experience a certain percentage of mortality. You just you just know that you're right. You're not going. Every one of those is not going to live. Um. But in the weeks following the actual installation of those trees, um, while up at the campsite around around um, my camper and my fire pit and the upper food plots and our pond up there, um, as summer wore on, I was looking around in the understory, and we have this real beautiful giant chinkapin oak seed tree right there that just drops acorns everywhere. So I had just dozens and dozens of these anywhere from six six inches to two and a half feet tall little chinkapin oak saplings that I thought, man, what, what better way? I've got these right here at my, you know, at, 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 at my fingertips that I could grab these. So I went around and I took surveyor's tape and took a little, you know, a four inch piece of blue surveyor's tape and I tied it around each one of those little saplings so that I could identify them in late winter, early spring when the leaves were gone. And, um, yeah, when they were dormant. A couple weeks ago, I went in there with a very uh, narrow, tall spade shovel, uh, like a tile spade, and got down in the soil underneath them and worked way down below the taproot and shook them loose and lifted them up out. and Basically, I bare-rooted them and um, filled a five-gallon bucket up with those trees. 
And I, you mentioned the chestnuts. I did buy some improved chestnuts, some hybrid chestnuts that were um, in little peat pots, you know, so that I, they were probably two feet tall. And I, I took those, that dozen chestnut trees and those couple dozen chinkapin oak saplings that I had, you know, obviously those are native seed stock. They're right there from my farm on the soil that, <laughs> that they were going to be basically planted back into while they're dormant. And um, it was just an easy, cool way for me to supplement what I knew I was going to lose in some mortality uh, in, in from the planting. And I went in and walked those rows up and down and I would stop every, every so often and I would reach down and at a sapling that I planted last year. And if I could bend the tip over and it was flexible, that tree's alive. It's viable. It's going to come back. But if I reached down and I grabbed a sapling and I started to bend it over and it snapped off, that's a dead tree, you know? Oh, so man. yeah, I would just stop right there. There's a perfect spot to replace one, you know, right. and, Right. So it took some time, but I had the data myself, and I was just out there enjoying it and just taking those trees out of an environment where they may or may not have ever become had a fighting chance to become a tree in in uh, in the understory up there to putting them out in in the tree rows out in the open field and um, <laughs> God willing, give them a chance and maybe they'll avoid deer browsing and and have a better chance to become a, a, a mighty oak one day out there in the in the project. So, so here's a follow-up question for you. My, there's a field I drive by every day when I bring my kids to school, and there's a bunch of, of uh, young oaks and, and even some cedars out there, real small. And, and the yeah. guy's a hay farmer, yeah. so it's, it's on a steep slope of this hill, and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't mow or, or plant that slope. I'm, I'm going to try to go ask him if I can get those trees off him and take them off his hands. Do you think, do you think people think we're crazy? for doing things like this by transplanting probably. trees from woods to field and back and forth. Probably so. I mean, it's funny that you mentioned the cedars, though, because the, actually the cedar trees that are in my um, project, I told you that we ordered 2,300 oak trees, but what I didn't tell you is that I hand-dug 200 cedar trees oh, that were um, <laughs> six, six inches to uh, two feet tall. And no. I did that exact same thing. We um, Zach and I took couple sharp shovels and a, and a big tarp and we went down to a uh, a roadside intersection my, my my younger brother is a, a a private contractor and he he's one of those guys that has the big fleet of tractors that with the 15 foot bat wing mowers and mows up and down the highways oh yeah oh, and yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. so he ha- he has these contracts and um in in one of the areas that he mows not too far from his home there's this big common like cloverleaf area that's got a lot of uh basically it's just a pasture in there with the hillsides on the on the side of the overpass are just absolutely covered with these young cedar trees and every couple years they get mowed mowed off so i know that the state doesn't want them there they're just they're causing them just a maintenance issue so i went down there um last year zach and i went out there with our shovels and within an hour we had a couple hundred of those things dug up bare rooted and wrapped tight in that bur- in, into a big uh a tarp and by golly those things got intermixed in within the planting um when we when we did the oaks and um man i probably just made he- people's heads explode because yep, you're gonna hear guys from uh let's say the hilly country of missouri say why in the world would you ever plant uh, uh <laughs> you know cedars in your in your oak stand yeah well we're we're trying to recreate a brushy field habitat situation. We do not have a problem with cedar trees 
overtaking a stand here. I mean, I, sure. in my in my 120 acres, I I don't even know of one cedar tree growing. Maybe I can sh- show you some old ones that died because they eventually got shaded out. But um, we are not in a situation here where where cedar trees are rampant and taking over. So they're uh, they're they're just a, a missing component. They, Correct. I know that sounds that sounds rare and weird to say that, but uh, I want some thermal and and visual screening cover supplementing it as an evergreen within the brushy oak stand. And trust me, 200 trees in 17 acres in the middle, you know, well, of course, the, the middle part, I think I told you guys, is five to seven in hardwoods. That's, that's nothing. And most of those, and I, I, most of those will survive. A, a, a portion of them won't. Um, if I've got a, a cedar tree for every 50 oak trees, by golly, I'll, I'll take it. Amen. I, I was wondering if you were going to catch the uh, the whole invasive side of things on that conversation. Uh, yeah, a lot of guys will will probably be shaking their heads at at this part. But at the same time, you know what? Where, where I'm at as well, I'm lacking thermal cover, uh, conifers, anything with with year-round cover, and those things grow like weeds. And I could use yep. a few hundred of them. There's not one in my area. So you know, yeah, it, like you said, I I think. Uh, I think it's, it's something I'm gonna I'm gonna go for, and I just I wondered if if you had ever thought about that too. It's funny that you actually did it. <laughs> I, I've done it many many times, and I can show you some now that I did back in, golly, all the way back to 2004, five or six that are you know 15 and 20 foot tall now that were exactly that. I dug them up out of a ditch or a fallow field that somebody mowed, and I transplanted them. And lo and behold, I gave them a fighting chance, and they are they're magnificent trees today, and providing screening and thermal cover. So, uh, here, I I think we we covered this in the in the past conversation that I'm a landscaper by heart, my by original trade. So, um, I can tell you this with all certainty is that if you if you dig cedar trees, um, early March we're starting to get to the point now i mean starting you can still do it now if you can get them in the ground within the same day or two after you dig them but as long as you keep the roots moist and get them and into the soil and that has some moisture to it you'll you'll still be okay ideally you would have done that a month ago yeah um but it's still possible to do it now and um if you go out with the with the I would take, I keep referring to it as a tile spade. It's got like a a two-foot-long blade to it, and it's only about four inches wide. It's what we used to use when we dug uh, ditches to put drainage tile in because they were narrow but long, and you could scoop out the soil in in a narrow trench. Those things are ideal for digging little sapling trees because you can get deep but not wide, and and by the time you stick it in the ground working your way around a tree, maybe you stick it and push your foot down six times and you've made a complete circle around this tree and cut all the, you know, a a nice clean sever of the roots that are going laterally, but you're deep enough down to get below that that lower tap root and then pull the thing up, you know, by leverage, you can work the soil up and then pull it up out of the ground and shake the soil off and stick it in the bucket. And now you've just exposed those roots to air. So you got to be very, very, uh, uh, you know, attentive to that you got to be conscious of the fact that you've exposed those things to air. The less time they're exposed to the oxygen, the better, because they will dry out, and then you start reducing your chances of survival. So 
the more trees you can put in that bucket and they, they sort of shelter each other out from the wind and the sun and the, and the moisture uh, loss. But then if you're going to take them home, I would either throw some shredded newspaper or some peat moss or some mulch or something in there and spray some water in there with a, you know, with a, with your hose. You don't need to fill the bucket up with water, but just keep those roots moist. And if you can get them in the ground within the next few days, if you can't get them, uh, maybe it's the, the following weekend or whatever, as long as you keep them out of the sun in the garage or in the barn, keep them cool and, and keep those roots very, very moist. You, you'll be able to make them survive when you, when you put them back in the soil. Okay, so what's your main cutoff date if you had to put a date on this for Michigan, Pennsylvania, Indiana, our area of the world? I'd say you're two weeks above me or behind me. I would say for me probably in about two more weeks, so probably by the end of the month of April for you guys. Okay. You know, by then you're pushing it quite to the extreme, um, but you still haven't those – they haven't full-blown just exploded their buds and really took taken off growing again. Yeah. They're just sort of in that they're ready to go, ready to go, and just starting to swell buds. And um, no doubt about it, it will be a shock to the system. But those things are tough trees, so man. They, 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 they yeah. really are. They really are. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think, I think uh, you can't even kill those darn things if you try and cut them down. So that's yeah, <laughs> that, that's a good point. Um, it it kind of had me thinking, do you ever screw around with, any red oak or dogwood cuttings or hybrid willow cuttings, anything like that? You ever mess with that stuff? I I don't. Um, I see I see guys doing that. Um, I, I haven't gotten that that off on on the side trail of, of um, propagation and things like that. I if if I want it, I buy it or I try to grab it um, natively and locally and just re- replant. But my my biggest thing is just encouraging what I have or or um, you know, red osier dogwood and, and a lot of the plants that um, that you that you're describing, we have a lot of gray dogwood that grows in the understory around the edges of our of our property too, like in that fringe between the dense densely shaded areas and the open sunlight. I I I've I've got my a really in my opinion, I've got a, a nice feathered edge by by nature and I some of my resetting and constantly working the edges down and I and I I have not. Just in full disclosure, I've never done any propagation or, or cutting like that. Now, I want to uh, transition a little bit here, Tom, uh, get into some other things that you might be doing this spring as far as scouting and looking at new stand locations or reevaluating old stand locations. What do you got going on with that? I'll tell you this. It, it goes back to what we said earlier about um, understanding and really, truly, fully appreciating the sensory and the adaptability and the, and the way that a whitetail can evade you and elude you and, and work around you. If you have had the same tree stand in the same tree for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, and you just by habit go back to that same tree, I think you're really doing yourself a disservice. Now, there, I gotta honestly, I gotta say, I do have some tree stands that will probably never, ever change, but the vast majority of them, I'm constantly, constantly looking at, you know, I sat in this tree and I watched that buck come down this hillside and he just so, ever so slightly worked around that, dropped off the main trail and and went there. And if I see a deer do something like that two times, then I know it's not just a fluke. 
So I'm constantly evaluating, um, trying to put those stands of mine into, I don't like to be right on top of deer because we, I, I, I really don't like to be, I, I used to be wanting to have my shots at 10 yards. Now I'm, let's, let's try to get within 20 to 25 yards of, a, of a, the best shot location. But I also, I don't want to walk across that deer trail when I'm entering the stand. I want to, when I leave the tree, I don't want to walk across that stand if at all possible, or across that trail if at all possible. So there's just this constant drive in me to want to perfect those locations. And um, sometimes you guys, it can be a 20 yard move on a, on a ridge top or a saddle or a, a pinch point, And now you're in the money. It, it sounds really kind of silly, but when you're a bow hunter and you're trying to put yourself into the your most effective range, but also balancing that with the covert and non-intrusive part of it and, and maintaining that, that respected space, it, it really it really causes you to think it in different different light, different strategy. Um, sure. I think a lot of people are, are just frankly probably lazy about they're just they stick a tree tree stand up and there was some good sign there, they killed a buck and guess what? That's where I'm I'm gonna go next year and sit every every weekend in the same tree. You know? Um right. we have we have stands Oh my gosh, I probably would I mean on the hundred and twenty acres we maybe have a dozen different stand sites. You know, and each one of those has two stands in it just because we're usually always hunting um with with each other, my daughters and and Zach. So, um, that those those are set up for different wind directions, different crop rotations, different times of the year, um, a morning stand versus an evening stand, and always trying to keep every one of those as fresh as possible. And um, if I bump a deer one night leaving a tree, I probably won't go back there for a while. Um, and something to be said, this, this is probably going down a different road altogether of a conversation, but um, I, I'll allude to it, and if you guys want to pick up on it in a minute, but it's when we talked about the small property tips, one of the biggest, biggest things that I've ever done that's increased my success over the years is to not hunt the early part of October in, in the mornings for sure. Yeah, that, that's a um, great point. And I don't know if you want to talk about that now or later, but yeah, if absolutely. you want to talk about, well, well, um, why well, was you? Why, why, why would you not hunt right off the bat? I, I, uh, my first year buying my 15 acres, I didn't hunt it till November 1st for the exact same reason you just mentioned. But I want to know why yeah. you. I want to know why you do it. Okay. I also mentioned in this conversation that some things I learned the hard way and it wasn't until I stumbled upon it by default that I, the light bulb came off sure. or came on. So I, I've also, I've read it. I've heard other people say it, but by golly, I'm a guy that loves to hunt and I look forward to October and in for years and years and years and years, I was the kid, the guy that October 1st, I'm up at 4 a.m. and I'm walking two hours into the sweaty woods and I'm getting into my tree. And, um, 
by golly, I'm going back into a different state. And I thought I was doing everything right. And I kind of was, I was really, you know, I was following the fundamentals about using the wind and, and not over hunting a stand and playing the, the food sources and, and trying to be uh, picking a way out that where I wouldn't bump deer. But it, that again, relates back to that conversation about the respect level and understanding truly how good these, these guys really are is that I heard it time and time again is to keep your best stands and don't even sit in them until it's time. When I mean time, and you guys know what I'm talking about from anywhere from Halloween until the second weekend of November, that is the peak time when, when bucks are finally up on their feet, consistently moving and starting into the pre-rut, the cruising and the seeking phase before they actually get into the full-blown chase phase, before they finally end up in the lockdown breeding phase. And we have that magical 10 to 14 day window there. And, um, what, what I, what I really had to do was sort of look back over the years of all the years that I was hunting and look at what bucks did I kill in October that were what I would consider, um, top end or satisfactory, you know, the deer that I was really truly satisfied with. And there was one, there was October the 13th, back in 1996, I killed a 155 inch 10 pointer uh, at, you know, 645 in the morning. And I just happened to be in the right spot and that buck was coming back to his bed and I, I killed him on his, on his transition back to bed. And I, I got lucky and didn't get winded, but I, I really, that was all I had to show for it through all those years of sweating and getting into the into the trees early and, and hunting through the month of October. Um, so not, not many years ago, I resorted to, okay, it makes sense. I don't think I can get into these tight bedding areas and get in front of him in time. Even if I left an hour before daylight or two hours before daylight, I still think I'm maybe bumping him in the timber as I'm headed back into the stand and, and he's on his way back to bed. As he sees that, horizon getting pink that that buck may be well on his way back into the timber you know and we we tend to think deer like you know like humans like oh the sun's popping up across the tree line over there i guess it's time to go to bed no they're uh they're 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 in more than likely well before we, we even anticipate that they would be and um so it made sense to me that if, if, if I'm blowing my chances in the morning, well, shoot, I could still hunt as much as I want to. We'll just make it evening hunts only. And you know what? Hey, guess what? You don't have to get up at 4 a.m. You can sleep in and go to camp and <laughs> hang, hang out in the, at, at camp and drink coffee and have a good time and, and, and hunt the evenings only. That, that's cool. That's fun. And that's fine. Um, as long as those evening hunts don't get you back into the middle of where he is and, right. and if you can hunt some fringes and still get out of there which is super super hard to do get out of there without alerting any deer to your presence um and i did that guys i did that for a number of years but here probably in the last five i have foregone much of that early season hunting just just overall, all together, and I really, 
I, it doesn't it doesn't hurt that I've also have other life things that are pulling me different directions and and, and right. life gets you busy. But I always 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 have dedicated time to deer hunting. Always, my wife knows that, my kids know that, my family knows that. So it, it's not like things. It, it's it was my own decision to do that, but there were some other influences that made it easier to make that decision. But anyway, um, it made all the difference in the world. If you guys can. I don't mean you guys, but the people listening, if you can grasp this concept that the hunts that you're going to miss out on in October, if, if you can only understand how much more beneficial and how much more fun and how much more eventful and more activity you will see by letting those areas be still and be alone and be undisturbed until it's the time is right, then I mean, it's it's hard to explain. You you don't know until you let it happen and see yep. it for yourself. The very first time you go in on an October 31st morning and you're in a stand that hasn't been hunted yet and the bucks are up on their feet, it's magical. I mean, you it will blow your mind. Um, you haven't you haven't spoiled that spot. You have not tipped anybody off to your presence. They don't know. They don't expect you to be there. You have the total upper hand on that scenario, and you've, you've caught them off guard. And it, they're they're at that level where they quite don't give a crap. <laughs> you know, they they're, they're they've let their guard down enough to be up moving around in the daylight, and and you have a distinct advantage, and you have not you have not tainted that spot or ruined your your uh, your chances. And once you see that with your own eyes. My gosh! All of a sudden, you feel like you're 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 the best big buck hunter in the world. You suddenly got it all figured out. <laughs> oh man, you are you are giving me the chills, my friend. I am getting fired <laughs> up right now. It's just uh, it, it, it's just a few more points to to hammer that you know, put that nail in that coffin. Even if you do sneak in there in early October and you sneak out undetected, your scent is still on the ground for you know twenty four, forty eight, seventy two hours. Any anything mature, at least where we hunt, is gonna is gonna pick up on that, and um, you know. And then secondly, go, go and look at your go and look at your trail cam pictures, or you know, take a journal of when you're seeing these these nice bucks on their feet. Uh, usually, it's the latter end of October, early November. Um, it, you can be statistical about it and look this up, and also determine maybe you should wait till that point. I just had some some old timer friend of mine, Mike Hartjes, uh, Michigan big buck killer. He goes, I will not go in till November first. I'm like, you're crazy. What are you talking about? And then I tried it, and I just bought the property that year. My, and my buddy Jesse, who used to be a, a host on this podcast, he's like, How are you not hunting right now? It's October 10th. You just bought this property. You haven't even hunted it. I go, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Uh, I passed uh, an eight point the first sit, and the second sit I put an arrow through a ten point, and it was there you like, go, man. it was like holy cow! What you know? This, there was actually <laughs> something to this, and uh, there is something to this. Yeah, there, there is something to this. I've learned since then that I do. I think I am missing a little bit of a a, a spike in activity, and in, in maybe the the late half of the second week of October, early part of the third week. So I think I'm going to try hitting that this year, but um, there's something to be said about that. So I, I urge everybody to really take these these uh, tips to, to heart and just, you know, pay attention this fall on your property and 
and see what happens. I think, uh, especially the smaller the property, the more important this gets, in, in my opinion. Exactly the point I was going to make. That's why I was kind of saving this for the last. Is Yeah, yeah let's roll the, into that. Keep going, yeah. Right. One of the, th- that is one of the, um, if not one, the most important, it's one of the two top most important things that turned my success around and made me, um, I, I would say, fairly consistent of being able to harvest a mature buck on a small property uh, was, was that that discipline in itself, and it truly is a discipline. I mean, uh, you, you're you're missing those days. Your buddies are are getting up and going hunting, and just like your friend was telling you, how can you how can you possibly do that? Um, but once you've experienced it, and you know that it, you're savoring it, and you're waiting it, and you're and waiting for it, and you're and you're keeping it fresh, and the quality of the hunts that you're going to experience, you may not have as many sits. But the quality of the hunts that you're going to experience by being disciplined are going to uh, well outweigh the, the hours, you know. So um, that that is the probably the number one biggest thing that I can suggest for guys with small properties. And the second one, and I know every property is different, so it's again this may not be a um, a one size fits all. I know people buy their land and they recreate on it, and they they love to do different things, right? They love to they love to take the family out and fish in the pond or the creek. Um, you know, maybe you like to trail ride with either side-by-sides or ATVs and dirt bikes and things like that. Or, But really, honestly, to be, if, if you want to be successful at harvesting mature bucks on your property and keeping them there and making this thing the best hunting place it can be, um, I we treat our farm like we're hunting it. 365 days a year when we pull up to the campsite which is located at the very southwest corner of the property we get out we shut the doors quietly nobody slams doors we're kind of whispering and it's kind of funny my girls grew up you know my my daughters they do it without even thinking about it you know we're we're whispering or you know talking in low tones around the camp um we we stay on the trails if we're going to do food plots if we're going to do work we're we're sticking to the main logging roads because the deer expect that they, they expect you to be there. Um, we're not burning up and down the roads, joy riding. We're, we're very, uh, we're very direct with what we do. We're driving back to this field to do that or to check that camera or to go to this field to plant that plot or this or that. And, and we're leaving, you know, it's not like there's machines buzzing up and down the trails constantly. You, I can hear other people right now saying, well, it doesn't matter because they just get up after you leave. And, you know, there's always going to be examples of proving you wrong, right? I'm just for telling sure. you. For sure. For That's us, okay. for us, this, this is what's worked. We, yep. we, we don't get off in the hills. We leave the deer alone in the timber. After our habitat work is done and our hinge cutting stuff is done, we stay on the fringes. We, we stick to the main trails. We, and we treat it like it's, we treat it like a sanctuary. We really, really do. Um, we still have fun. We go camp, we fish, we we mushroom hunt, um, but we stick to the trails and we we leave them alone. We do, we don't get off in in their areas and, and we're quiet while we're there and we're respectful. And I I really believe that that that's probably another big huge tip. And it's probably hard and impossible for some people because you're going to have grandkids that want to ride a you know the go kart around or the side by side. And I, I get that, but but. Uh, the reality of it is, the the, the more the more um, 
peace and quiet and, and less intrusion you can give your property. Uh, it sounds pretty fundamental. It's harder to do than it sounds, but it the, the better. I couldn't agree with you more. I think there's been enough people um, in in the hunting world that have mentioned this over the last couple of years that, you know, I don't think you're sounding crazy or, or we're sounding crazy but by saying this stuff. It's it's really, it, it really does matter. So, I mean, if, if you don't, if you don't want to worry about that stuff, that's fine. You know, everybody has different goals. Um, right. Uh, for the stuff we're talking about and the stuff we want to complete and, and, and the deer we want to harvest, uh, I, I, I don't step off the trails. Uh, like you said, they expect you to be there. Dan Infault talks about that all the time. People walk up and down these public land trails all day long, but as soon as you step off that trail, you're in, you're in their territory now, and, and they know that. Right. So it's uh, – Great points, Tom. Awesome points. Right. There's one question that we started asking people, I don't know, a while back, and we always get some pretty good answers. Casey Shootman had a pretty good answer. We asked him this one as well. Um, wondering what your favorite tree is. Could be for habitat. Could be for hunting. You could have one of each. I don't care. I, I just love hearing what what people have to say, and it's, you know, it's pretty cool stuff. So I'm curious what you have to say, Tom. Yeah. Um, it's it's probably the same as a lot of these guys would would answer, but my, my my favorite tree, and just because it's majestic and and it has all the values and attributes that we look for in wildlife trees, is the big white oak. I just I just think they're cool, they're beautiful, the big spreading crown and the majestic stature of those trees. Um, the wood when you cut a tree, the smell of oak mm-hmm. is just a. Uh, it's just got that earthy fragrance that just soothes your soul. It's a beautiful wood when you see it finished in the fun- uh, in the furniture, rather. And uh, knowing that they're dropping the acorns that are that are feeding the deer and 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 drawing wildlife up to them is just a a, a really really cool attribute or a feature of them. Um, and I just the the lobed leaves on them that the, I just everything about a white oak is just really cool to me. Um, that may be overly simplified, but that's my favorite tree. Um, I can tell you on my own property, my least favorite tree is the doggone American beach because they grow up. <laughs> they, they, you know, they you grow up. Those, huh? Oh my gosh. They are like dog's hair on, on, I mean, they, um, we, we, we did some, some, uh, featured videos back Casey and I did about them. I think we even titled that series was some beach, you know, because, uh, <laughs> I, Great song. they're, they're like my number one, uh, target tree when I, when I hinge cut and I'm not laying them over to provide food. I'm, I'm just strictly laying them over to reduce their numbers and to create high level <laughs> cover, you know, Side so cover, Side cover, yeah, just because of the predominance and their ability just to flourish. And, and, and you guys know a beach is a, a shade tolerant understory tree that will eventually dominate the stand if you let them go. And, um, I'm trying to reset and keep my, 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 my woods a, an oak hickory dominated forest as opposed to a beach maple. So, um, people will say, well, why don't you like beach? Because they do produce a nut. They do. Yeah, I get it. But, I have millions and millions of millions of those and I'm, I'm managing for oak timber stands. And, um, if I don't watch and within you turn your back for five to 10 years and, and beach can, can literally take over and in the right conditions. That's again, one size does not fit all. Well, it's interesting you say that where I, 
grew up hunting where I ended up shooting my first deer over in uh, Hesperia, Michigan. All the state ground over there is, is all beach taken over. It really is. Um, yeah. And we're that's in western Michigan. I mean, you're not too far from there, but it's like... Uh, no. I, I've never understood why, but it seems like um, they're pretty strong, strong tree once you give them a little freedom. They they just they'll they'll germinate in the shade, which is unheard of. You know they germinate <laughs> in the shade yeah. and they thrive in the shade and they just grow up through the, and they create and they cast more shade, and the next thing you know, everything underneath it is uh, unable to. Um, it cannot be a sun requiring species. It's going to be a shade tolerant species, and then before you know it, you have a desolate landscape underneath, and it's right. just all shade. And beech trees are awesome, and they're beautiful, right? They're big, slick gray bark, and they're statuesque. They're, they're giant and sprawling. Um, name I actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I actually let some of them exist on my uh, ravine edges, you know, where they're kind of hanging over the, the side draws because they, they, they do tend to like that moist but yet well-drained soil. Um, there's nothing wrong with having some of them around, but um, I just don't want them to be a dominant species taking over the stand, so we manage for that. Um, interesting enough that central Illinois, I think you get past Springfield, Illinois, moving westward, you don't even find them. Really? They don't even have, they don't, they do not have beach over in western Illinois. Somebody may correct me, but uh, Casey says there's none over there. And I, and he's not the only one that's told me that, that they just don't find them that far west. Very interesting. Yeah, well, lucky them. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. It, I love these podcasts. You learn so much every time. It's great. Every Man. time. There's something cool to learn from everybody. Well, Tom, thank you so much uh, once again for coming on. It's already it's already been over an hour again. Time just flies sitting here having a Doesn't great conversation. Though? Holy cow. And, uh, you know, I just want to reiterate, you know, where where can the listeners find you if they want to follow you, learn more from you and your companies, and, and uh, you know, how can they tag along? Sure. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, once again, I'm still – I'm an active team member with the Management Advantage, and you can go to uh, – themanagementadvantage.com. We have a website and a YouTube channel where you can watch and check out all the videos that we have done over the years relative to land and wildlife management. And um, at my my full-time job, I am uh, the national sales manager for Base Camp Country Real Estate. And you can go there at basecampcountry.com. Um, I'm on the uh, I'm on a page there. You can always email me at tom.james at basecampcountry.com. And um, we are sellers of recreational farm and timber and investment land, real estate. Um, love to help anybody out. We're spreading out from Indiana and moving rapidly outward. We are in six states now and um, soon to be licensed in Ohio this week and um, turning our focus to Missouri and on beyond. Uh, a sister company of Base Camp Leasing, which is the 20-year-old leasing company, uh, putting hunters with landowners together for 20 years. Um, and there was just a need and a niche that filled perfectly for expanding into the real estate business from uh, Steve Mang, our owner. So he, he trusted me to come over and, and help him run that company for Base Camp Country Real Estate. So between those two places, you can find me and follow us and if you're interested in looking at some property for sale or have something you want to sell, we can help you out. But if you're just interested in tagging along and, and seeing what we do in land and wildlife management, the management advantage is the place to be. 
awesome time. And then uh, one, you know, that was awesome. And one last question: How do you get a management advantage hat? Ah, great question. <laughs> uh, well, you, you I'm gotta, a hat you guy. Ask. <laughs> we can make that happen. Um, Howard O'Neill, if you're listening, uh, Howard is one of the co-owners of the Management Advantage, and he does um, have a nice cache of those hats put away for special people that call and ask or email in writing for one, and I'm sure we can get you hooked up with a nice hat. Yes, sir. That, thank you very much. That would be awesome. It looks like uh, Howard and I are already friends on Facebook somehow or another, but... Uh, all you gotta do is send cool. him a, send him a message, and, and Howard will take care of you. I promise you. Oh, that's great. Now you guys, uh, you guys do a great job on that show. We've had Chase on here, we've had Casey on here, you've been on here. I mean, we we just Good love deal. that show. You guys are a lot like us, and uh, obviously, we don't mind uh, BSing with you about deer for you know over an hour. Time flies. I just uh, I'm glad it you really does. On. And uh, thank you so much, Tom. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank and you. And guys, so much. I look forward. to Look forward to, um, you know, doing a, a mutually beneficial relationship here where we can promote the Habitat podcast to the people that listen and, and look us up. And and uh, I think we have a, a great synergy here that we ought to just keep going. Yes, sir. Yeah, Absolutely. we're going to definitely take advantage of that. You're going to hear more from uh, Tom and the team. And uh, we're looking to get to your listeners as well or your uh, users as well. So that sounds awesome, Absolutely. Tom. Thank you so much. Great, guys. Hey, thanks again for having me on. It's really been a great time. All right, thanks, Tom. Take care. Appreciate it. Thank you so much again, Tom, for coming on the show. I just really enjoyed chatting with you. uh, I'm going to have to come down and see your place sometime. It just sounds amazing. So thank you so much for coming on. The listeners, you guys are loyal listeners. The reason we do all this, thank you so much for coming on and listening once again. We couldn't do it without you. You know, we're just trying to learn and help you guys learn and just, you know, we eat this stuff up, we live and breathe this stuff, and we're glad that you guys do too. Thank you so much. Um, I'd like to thank our sponsors. We have Packer Max Cult of Packers, Killer Food Plots, 5-2 Outdoors, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. Stay tuned for some pretty awesome turkey kill videos coming soon. The HuntWise app, Morse Nurseries, and the Habitat Hook. Thank you guys for helping support the podcast. And for all you listeners out there, please check us out at HabitatPodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there, along with some gear, some hats, some shirts. Uh, We also have our land plans up there. If you're looking for some questions answered on your property, check it out, HabitatPodcast.com. And we will be back very soon with another great episode, guys. Take care. Be safe. Enjoy your woods. Good luck turkey hunting. I hope everybody's successful. And uh, we'll be back soon, becoming better habitat managers. of Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from Hunt Stand Presents anywhere, 
anytime, and on any device. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. 